So Pester Byron Cogdell of Daytona Beach, Florida is um, joining us to uh, continue an ongoing and kind of sporadic series um, of sermons detailing and profiling some Christian saints, holy ones, some of whom are really official and stick in your minds as people who should have the word saint in front of their name. And some might be a little uh, more surprising or a little more contemporary to us. And so Pastor Byron is about as qualified as anyone to talk about uh, Howard Thurman, who is a, a notable author, a mentor of uh, some major civil rights figures and a, a deep um, Christian man of God. Uh, I, uh, I think I first came upon uh, Howard Thurman reading Jesus and the Disinherited a few years back. And I swear I have more notes in the back of that book than maybe about any other book that I've read. And it's just a short, little punchy, uh, beautiful book. But um, Pastor Byron and his family lived in Memphis and did a, a church planning residency. And then in 2017, planted Identity Church in Daytona. And uh, Daytona is actually my hometown where I was born and raised and where I lived until I went to college. And so uh, Pastor Byron wasn't uh, leading identity. Identity maybe wasn't even uh, a calling or a thought that had occurred to him while I was in Daytona. But uh, from afar, I've connected with him and really resonated with uh, what they're doing, what the Lord's doing in and through them uh, there in Midtown Daytona. Um, I'm really excited uh, to hear uh, this word from um, uh, a great pastor and a Bethune-Cookman Wildcat alum, uh, and, uh, and Pastor Byron, if, if uh, you'll let me out, I'll, I'll read our scripture and then you can take it from here. Our scripture today comes from the book of Philemon or the letter of Philemon. It's only got one chapter. And so we'll read a couple segments of it. Philemon, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers because I've heard of your love and faithfulness which you have both for the Lord Jesus and for God, all God's people. I pray that your partnership in the faith might become effective by an understanding of all that is good among us in Christ. I have great joy and encouragement because of your love, since the hearts of God's people are refreshed by your actions, my brother. Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to command you to do the right thing, I would rather appeal to you through love. I, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Jesus Christ, appeal to you for my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith during my time in prison. He was useless to you before, but now he is useful to both of us. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Amen. Am I still with you? Yeah, you're good. And and y'all, uh, Byron's going to share some slides, so you might want to change your view to speaker view. Uh, might make those bigger on your screen for you. Well, let me let me start this morning by saying good morning, saints, and for some of you, good morning, ain'ts. Uh, I might be on that ain't list. Uh, some of the days of my life. I'm glad that 
Chris was able to intro me uh, pretty well without going into detail that would get me in trouble. Uh, I come to you from, if you don't know what that map is over here, uh, I come to you from Daytona Beach, Florida, which I am glad to be a member of this community and have been here for the last 15 years. You might know Daytona for um, uh, a lot of different things. So North Carolina created NASCAR, but Daytona made it famous, right? Uh, Vince Carter, one of the greatest basketball players and Tar Heel um, came from Daytona Beach, uh, Florida. You might know Daytona Beach from something called Spring Break, uh, especially if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, or you may know Daytona from uh, one of the guys with the greatest afros and paintbrushes in the world. Bob Ross is from Daytona Beach. And one of the greatest preachers that I've ever heard on the East Coast, his name is Chris Breslin, is also from Daytona Beach. So I am glad that I get to uh, bring the word from Daytona Beach this morning. As you can see, I, I've had my coffee for the morning, so bear with me. But I'm happy that I get to talk about somebody who many people don't talk about when they talk about Daytona Beach. And that's a mentor of mine. That's a man who has substantially made an amazing impact on my faith journey and my life. Um, as I sit here at the corner of Magnolia um, and Orange Avenue, I am just streets away from this man who we are going to talk about this morning, where he was born, um, Howard Thurman. Howard Washington Thurman was uh, born at a house that if I could point to the map is right around here. It's not too far from where we are right now. And I am just glad and elated that I can tell you a little bit more about him. Congressman John Lewis, who passed away not too long ago, he said in an interview about a year ago that Howard Thurman was actually one of the saints. He uses this word. He's one of the saints of the civil rights movement. He was one of the forefathers. Some people say the pastor or the sage of the civil rights movement. So let me answer the question, who is Howard Thurman? Well, he's a theologian, he's a pastor, he's a church planner, he's a mystic. He would not like me calling him a theologian, although he is. Actually, I believe he's one of, uh, one of the greatest African-American theologians to ever lived. He was a pastor to many. He pastored many churches across America. But even more than that, he pastored people's hearts. Some of the men and women who made the greatest impact in the last hundred years have been impacted by the love and the care and the shepherding of Howard Thurman, a church planter, as he joined with many ministers, men and women, to launch a new church that people had never seen before. And a mystic because he is a thinker. He dabbled in philosophy, but he was grounded in his theology. And this is part of why many people love Howard Thurman. He is a thinker, a teacher, and overall, the reason why I love him so much is because he's a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you a little background. I'll give you a few details, and then I'll tell you where we're going. You heard the scripture read this morning. I promise you it connects. The reason why I enjoy preaching from this place right here, the corner of Magnolia and Gene Street, is because I'm just right down the road from where Howard Thurman's life started, 614 White Hall 
Road, 614, oh, excuse me, Whitehall Street. And let me show you a picture of Howard Thurman's home, if I can. This is where Howard Thurman grew up, 614 Whitehall Street. Now, for all of my identity people, this may look familiar uh, because we actually took a trip to 614 Whitehall Street a few years ago. Let me see if I can pull up the picture of us at Howard Thurman's house. This is us standing outside of Howard Thurman's house. You see that big oak tree that sits in the middle of the yard. Now, when you think of Daytona Beach, do you think of that? Do you see that in your imagination? You likely don't. And Howard Thurman knows that you don't. If you read any of his works where he speaks autobiographically, he often speaks of the fact that growing up in Daytona, it was almost as if he grew up in a different Daytona than what the rest of the world experienced. If I were to drive down Whitehall Street right now, it would be very similar to the how Howard Thurman describes it. A narrow road, it's paved now. It might not have been paved at that time. Big oak trees that are on my left and my right, they are decorated with moss that blows back and forth in the wind. You hear the soundtrack of crickets going off in the background only to be interrupted by a railroad car that's going down Henry Flagler's railroad. This is very much how Daytona is right now. The reason I shared that to you this morning is because Daytona is very similar to the Daytona that the Howard Thurman grew up in, at least the part of Daytona that we are in right now, what we call Midtown Daytona. Howard Thurman uh, lived a lot of his life, especially in the beginning with his grandmother, Miss Nancy Ambrose, that house that you saw earlier, that's her house. And he lived with his grandmother for the most part because at the time, Negroes didn't have many places to work in Daytona Beach. So his mom had to travel to find work. His dad worked on the railroad, much like many poor blacks in Daytona Beach at the time. Howard Thurman would say that one of the most pivotal moments of his childhood happened right at 614 Whitehall Street. He was sitting there, eight years old, and here's a knock at the door. His father collapses into the doorway of his grandmother's house. His father couldn't breathe. He'd been struck in with pneumonia while working on the railroad, had no life, in, uh, no health insurance, no life insurance, no way to take care of himself. And eight days later, his dad dies. Howard Thurman would write that he was quickly acquainted with death. And as he was acquainted with death, he had this desire deep down in himself to search for something that was greater than death, something that would provide life and hope. This led him to explore the tenets of the faith. Now in this community, everybody went to church. There was not a person who did not go to church, especially in the black community. Howard Thurman's uh, mother was raised Methodist. His grandmother went to a, a big church, huge red and white church called Mount Bethel Institutional Baptist Church. It still stands today, one of the most beautiful churches I've seen. Howard Thurman would go with his grandmother to church. And every Sunday he would hear just these great orations that would come from the pulpit, but he had not yet connected what was here to what was here. So he did not proclaim his faith until it was ready. One day he did proclaim his faith and the church did not believe him. He said he needed an experience and his grandmother came on his behalf and say, who are you to tell this boy what he has experienced? A few days later, he was baptized in the Halifax River. 
at that same church where he uh, saw his faith come alive. He was baptized. He preached his first sermon. He was called into ministry from the same church right here in Midtown Daytona. I could give you a lot more details about Howard Thurman's life. I could tell you about how he left Daytona Beach to go to one of the only schools in uh, one of three schools in the state of Florida that was for black boys and how he graduated from that high school at the top of his class. I could tell you about how he went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the most premier all black or historically black college or institutions. And he graduated as valedictorian. I could tell you uh, some of the facts about how he graduated valedictorian of his seminary, Rochester Seminary, or how he continued to achieve in his studies, even sitting under a Quaker who was well known at the time named Rufus Jones. And this is kind of what stirred in him to think more about uh, his faith from the inward and express it in the outward. All of those things about Howard Thurman's life are important. But what I believe, here is the most important moment that happened for Howard Thurman happened in 1935. Somebody write that down, 1935. Uh, I kind of grew up in the Baptist tradition, so I would ask you to repeat it, 1935. I'm looking at your, your, your mouths. I don't see you. 1935, something changed in Howard Thurman in 1935. And let me just ask you, some of you might have a story like that. Some of you have a moment in your life where something shifted, it changed, and it, 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 it puts you in a place where your faith became alive in a different way. What happened in 1935 lives so heavily on Howard Thurman's heart that every single book that he's written involves this particular thing. Every interview he's ever done involves this particular occurrence. If, if he was talking to me, I would have a story, something about barbecue or, or something about me uh, coming to faith on my couch. That would be what would be in my books. But for Howard Thurman in 1935, his life changed. And this is why I'm preaching to you this morning, because in the fall of 1935, Howard, his wife, Sue, and two others went on what's called a friendly pilgrimage in India. Now, let me just stop and say this. I love missions. I really do. I want to, I want to reach the world for Jesus Christ. But I wish that the Christian church would do more friendly pilgrimages than going out and trying to conquer new places, going out and trying to impress whatever their culture is on new places. That, and let me get off my soapbox. I'm here to talk about Howard Thurman. This friendly pilgrimage was beautiful. It was wonderful. It changed his view on his faith. And as Howard Thurman was in India, as he wrapped up his trip in the last few days, he was able to meet with the great Mahatma Gandhi. He had wanted this moment for so long. He respected Gandhi's thoughts, his thinking, his philosophies. He had studied up on him. He had given request after request after request to meet him. And finally, in the last few days, he gets to meet him and he sits down with Gandhi and he will tell you, he will tell you that this conversation was short, but it changed his life. Howard Thurman has impacted the lives of Dr. Martin Luther King and several civil rights leaders. That happened because of this conversation. 
Howard Thurman was able to tell the world about how much Gandhi respected men like Booker T. Washington. That came out of this conversation. But one of the most important things that came out of this conversation was a question that Gandhi asked Howard Thurman that I believe either haunted him, shocked him, inspired him, or did all of these things above. I will just show you what Gandhi said to Howard Thurman in this conversation. Here is an excerpt from Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And this is what Gandhi says to him as they wrap up their conversation. He says, more than 300 years ago, your forefathers were taken from Western coast of Africa as slaves. The people who dealt in slave traffic were Christians. One of your famous Christian hymn writers, Sir John Newton, made his money from the sale of slaves in the New World. He is the man who wrote how sweet the name of Jesus sounds and amazing grace. There may be others, but, but these are the ones that I know of. The name of one of the famous British slave vessels was Jesus. The men who brought the slaves were Christians. Christian ministers, quoting the Christian apostle Paul, gave the sanction of religion to the system of slavery. Some 70 years or more ago, you were freed by a man who was not a professing Christian, but was rather the spearhead of certain political, social, economic forces, the significance of which he himself did not understand. During all the period since, then, during all the period since then, you have lived in a Christian nation in which you are segregated, lynched, burned. Even in the church, I understand there is segregation. One of my students who went to your country sent me a clipping telling about a Christian church in which the regular Sunday worship was interrupted so that many could join a mob against one of your fellows. When he had been caught and done to death, they came back to resume their worship of their Christian God. I am a Hindu. I do not understand. Here you are in my country, standing deep within the Christian faith and tradition. I do not wish to seem rude to you, but sir, I think you are a traitor to all the darker peoples of the earth. I am wondering what you, an intelligent man, can say in defense of your position. Every time I read that, I get sad. The first time I read that, I almost cried. The reason why is because almost a hundred years after this happened, as a black man who was a pastor, I can only imagine if a religious leader halfway across the world would ask me that question today. If the Dalai Lama or Malala would ask me that question today, how would I answer that question? If, if someone came to me today and said, how could you worship the same God of the people who say that black lives don't matter? How can you worship the same God of a person who, who would claim that you believing in racial justice is actually a heretical doctrine. How could you worship the same God as a person 
who would not call domestic terrorism or, or any ethnic or ethnocentric a supremacist group evil? How could you worship that same God? This is a question that haunts men and women to this day. This is the same question that haunted Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Even to the day that he traveled to Memphis and was killed by so-called Christians. This is the question that haunted a man named Frederick Douglass as he lived his life to see people just looked at as equal. And he writes a letter called, What is the Fourth of July to the Negro? This is the question that so many wrestle with, not just black and brown brothers and sisters, but other brothers and sisters all over the world. If I could sum up that question, it would be this. How can you worship the same God as your master? How can you worship the same God as your master? Let me tell you, Oak, Gandhi was right. He was right about a lot of things. He was right about the history of slave owners and slaveholders. He was right about the fact that their wives, their pastors, their community, their brothers, their sisters did not speak against it. He was right about a lot of the history that he brought about. He was even right that, that men used the words of the apostle Paul to sanction slavery in this nation. But what Gandhi was not right about is as he spoke of the Apostle Paul, he must have ignored or at least not known of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this man named Philemon. Oh, church, let me tell you something. Let no one ever tell you, no matter who it is, that the Bible says slavery or, or treating any man lesser is okay, or the Bible sanctions that in any way. Because one of the greatest pieces of evidence against that is the book of Philemon. I thank God that the book of Philemon is right there for us. It's been given to us as a gift because it answers the question, how can you worship the same God as your master? If you don't know about the book of Philemon, let me give you a crash course. It's short, but I can still give you a crash course. It's written by a man named Paul. Paul writes this as he sits in a Roman jail, a jail cell. He's sitting, writing to the churches, and he, he thinks to write a letter to this man named Philemon. He writes to Philemon on behalf of a slave, a slave from Colossae. This man's name was Onesimus. Now, we don't know all the details about what happened with Onesimus, but we can guess. Some historians would say that Onesimus ran from his master and that somehow, some way, he ended up in the same place as Paul, that they ended up in a jail cell together for some reason. And I just imagine Paul just being the wonderful evangelistic apostle that he is. He shared his faith with this man named Onesimus. Onesimus came to faith in Jesus Christ as they sat there chained. And as they sat there, Paul, being a loving apostle, he, he, he discipled Onesimus in the way of Jesus Christ. Glory to God that even in chains, these two men can have freedom in Christ. I'm about to preach today. I'm sorry uh, right now. But in this time, as Onesimus and Paul spend time together, Paul falls in deep love with Onesimus. He has this deep brotherly love for this man Onesimus. We know that because Paul says that he is not a slave 
but he's a son. Paul goes even further in saying that he's like his very own heart. Now, Paul is a privileged man. Paul is an educated man. He's in a bad situation, but he's a, a Roman citizen that can traverse around Rome. Onesimus is not. So when we read the book of Philemon, it's literally Paul putting his privilege to the side to come on behalf of a man who was once a slave. <laughs> Onesimus was subjugated at one point and Paul is calling for him to be recognized. And this is a very uncommon occurrence. This is like um, a Duke fan being caught on Franklin Street during the Final Four after they've been eliminated. I know, I know y'all are in Durham, but I'm a Carolina fan. This is an unlikely occurrence. That's what I want you to get. That, that Paul is stepping out of what's ethical, what's more, uh, or what's normal, what's acceptable, and what's suitable to do what's ethical, what's moral, and what's Christ-like. He stands up for the one, as Howard Thurman would say, the one who has his back against the wall. What would our world be like? What would our world be like if someone went up to Jonathan Edwards as a friend and advocated for the slaves that he held? What would our world be like if someone went up to George Whitfield as a friend and a brother and advocated for those who he had enslaved? What would our world be like if Thomas Jefferson had a friend who understood who Jesus was and advocated for those slaves because what he knew of Jesus. This is what Paul is doing. Paul is appealing to Philemon, Un not, listen, not under the banner of economic opportunity, not under the banner of racial unity, not even under the banner of a loss of property. Paul is appealing to Philemon under the banner of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the text real quick. I believe in going to the Bible. So let's do some Bible work and then I'll get out of your way. Start with me in verse five. If we look in verse five, we will see right here where Paul, he's saying, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. What does that tell me? That tells me that Paul is praying. He's praying for Philemon. He's praying for this church. He's praying for Onesimus. He acknowledges the fact that Philemon is one who already loves the saints, right? Because he says, the reason why I'm praying, look at verse five, is because I hear of your what? Your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. Let me stop right there, Oak. He says, all the what? Saints. He's saying every single person who belongs to Jesus Christ, you already have love for them. That's something we need to hold on to, that we have love for all of the saints. We have love for every single person, especially those who know Jesus Christ. But then hear, hear this in verse six. He says, I already know that you love all the saints. So I pray for your participation in the faith to become more active or more effective through knowing every good thing that is in us in the glory of God or Christ. This is what Paul is doing. He is kind of like buttering him up. 
he's saying to him, you already love all the saints. So I pray that your participation, this word is a Greek word, koinonia, which means fellowship. I pray that the fellowship that you have with other believers will give you even more love. Paul knows he's about to drop a bomb on him. He knows that he's about to let him know, if you love Christians, then you have to love Onesimus because Onesimus has become one. Onesimus belongs to Jesus. Onesimus is now a saint. So Paul pushes through in the next couple verses. He pushes through the fact that he is the Don Dada. He is the, the big apostle. He is the man. He can demand Philemon to do something. But instead, he puts his privilege to the side and he appeals to him in the sake of love. He says, I come to you with love. I don't want to force you. I don't, I don't want to make you do anything. I want to come to you with love. And then in verses 15 and 16, he says, for, for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time. He's reflecting on the fact that God's hand is working even when you don't know that it is. Maybe this is why. In these verses, I feel like Paul is saying, I can't compel you, I can't command you, but I can call you to live in the fellowship that Christ provides and that we share. But 16 and 17, it gets me. Oh, church, 16 and 17 is what makes me want to jump out of my seat. Because in 16 and 17, he says, no longer as a slave do I want you to look at him, but more than a slave. Look at him as a dearly loved brother. But more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother, he is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. I won't, I won't go deep into that. But verse 17, he says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in a position when you advocate for somebody else. I don't know how many of you have been in a position where you're good in a place, but you have to advocate for another person in a place. My Daytona people know this. There's a place called Bethune Grill. And in Bethune Grill has some of the best wings I've ever tasted. They're like honey and hot. If you ever come to Daytona, hit me up, I'll take you. But there are some times where, where people will ask me, where can I get good food? And, and I let them know, hey, go to Bethune Grill. They will hook you up. And they say, well, where is it? And I say, well, go to the Ave. Matter of fact, when you get in there, let them know that Byron sent you. Because when I say that, the people at the register, maybe even the people in the back, they know Byron's face from eating Bethune Grill wings. So if that person goes and they say Byron sent them, then that means they should receive the same quality of treatment that I receive as one who is loved. Paul. Paul is saying, I'm sending this former slave to you. I want you to treat him like you would treat me. If you love me, then love him. If you would treat him well, or treat me well, treat him well. If you would have him in your household and spend time with him, do the same thing for him that you would do for me. If you consider me a partner, if we share in fellowship, welcome him 
let me give you a last little illustration here. In California, there's these trees called redwood trees. Redwood trees are beautiful. You can see them as you're flying into California. They're these huge trees. They're about 40 miles wide. They're, they go way up in the air, almost 200 feet. And guess what? These redwood trees, they grow in bunches. You won't just catch one on the side of the road. There's always a few of them or a lot of them together. The reason why the redwood trees can grow as wide and as strong and as tall as they do is because at the root, they are intertwined with one another. It's almost as if the redwood trees are rooted in the fellowship, the growth of each other. Men and women of God, what Jesus gives us is roots of fellowship. What Jesus gave Paul and Philemon and Onesimus, it's roots of fellowship. If, if one person is cut down or treated badly, then that means everyone should fall. So, so what Paul is pushing into is the fact that Onesimus and Philemon are rooted together. And who knitted those roots together? None other than Jesus himself. If someone were to ask Onesimus the question, as he takes this letter back to Colossa to deliver it to his former master, if someone were to ask him the question, how in the world can you worship the same God as your master? I believe he would say this. The reason why is because he is no longer just a master and I am no longer a slave, but he has made me a brother that a man, stood in the gap between me and him. He was stretched wide and he was hung up high. He died for the sake of the sin that is within me, the sin that might have brought me to this place and the sin that will continue in my life. He has died for that sake. And as he died, he was buried and he resurrected to sit at the right hand of the father. I no longer look at him as my master. I look up to see my master. Friends, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ knitted us all together in beautiful fellowship that would allow for us to live under an umbrella where we are all brothers and sisters. And in that rooting, we are not just looking up to see our master, but we are looking left and right to love those whom we are connected to. I'm going to get out of your way in a second. But let me just say this, that, that Paul doesn't appeal to Onesimus or, or Philemon on the basis of might, merit, or mercy. He appeals to him on the basis of fellowship. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says one time that we cannot legislate morality. But what the Bible says is that we can push in to the love that we must all possess in Jesus. So for all of us, when we see those who need to be advocated for, we can push aside or we can stand in the gap and, and be like Paul in those situations. Because the understanding is that Jesus has already bridged the gap, that we are just there to remind each other of the fellowship. Howard Thurman understood this. He did. 
And although he did not answer Mahatma Gandhi with this particular thing, I believe that Howard Thurman lived the rest of his life not preaching this, but living it. One of the first multi-ethnic, multi-denomination uh, churches that was ever planted in the United States happened because Howard Thurman uprooted his life, went across the country to California and served as a pastor of the fellowship of all people's church. I'd even push and say they should change it to the fellowship of all saints church because he believed in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. This was a theme of his life, reconciliation and fellowship. If we were to open any of his books, you would see this theme. If you were to hear any of his interviews, you would see this theme. And Howard Thurman made it abundantly clear that we are to do as Jesus did, stand in the gap, advocate for those who are our brothers and do that all in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. If you, if you are unsure about that fellowship, I pray right now that you see the beauty that Jesus has provided in standing in that gap between not just you and other men or women, but you and sin and evil in itself. Oak Church, do you mind if I pray for you as we wrap up? Let's pray. Dear, wonderful, beautiful, mighty Father. I love the fact that we can call you Father. And I love the fact that we can celebrate in the fact that you would send your son to be the mediator, stand in the gap between us and sin so that sin is no longer our master, but that we are free to live in you. That you put all of the power and, and things aside to come down, to sin into this world, to live under Roman oppression, to be treated as a slave, to be hung up like a criminal, to be put in chains, to die so we could be free from sin. Thank you for this truth. And thank you for delivering us men and women all throughout history that will remind us of the, that truth. I thank you that you would give us a man like Howard Thurman who would let us know that there are some with their backs against the wall, but the only hope that they have and the only hope that any of us have is to be pulled away from that wall and pushed into loving fellowship that comes from your sacrifice. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus's mighty name. Amen, amen, and amen. Oh, man, thank you, Pastor Byron, for a great word and for opening up uh, an amazing life to us. Um, the, the main goal in the series is to um, to open up our imaginations that we uh, too are called uh, saints. Y'all are saints, um, holy ones in Durham, holy ones in Daytona, holy ones in exactly the place that you are.